I'd like to welcome Dr. Neil Shore, uh, who joins us today from the Atlantic Urology Clinics in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, as well as he's the medical director with Carolina Urologic Research Center. I really want to move on from where we've been to where we're going. Let me ask you, how do you feel about uh, the state starting to open up? Your state is one of the earlier ones to really start gauging again. Yeah, well, thanks, Todd. It's it's great to uh, have a chance to chat with you about all this. I think like everyone, these last six weeks, four weeks have been marked by tremendous fluidity of information. And with that, a lot of changes. People say, wow, you know, things are changing by the week, sometimes by the day, and even sometimes by the hours. What I've heard best describe is a sort of the acute reaction phase to this pandemic. I mean, a tremendous amount has happened for all of us as it relates to understanding the significance of this pandemic and how have we reacted to it. And as you say now, we're starting to see a descend in the infectivity rate, a descend in the mortality rates pretty much across the country and even in globally. Um, there's, of course, there's a lot of variation. We're seeing a descend in the hospitalization rates. And so now we're, I think we're starting to think about this, this opening up or a recovery phase. So like any sort of uh, natural disaster, uh, it's always maybe too simplistic, but in some ways more comprehensive to think about phases of response. So the, the first was this acute reaction phase now we're into this recovery phase. And I think come maybe the end of the summer or the fall, we'll start to be thinking about a prevention phase. And, and all of this, I, th I think, is promulgated upon the new learnings that we've had. You know, how significant is the infectivity rate in your region? And, and you mentioned where I am in, in, in South Carolina. I think overall, we've been very fortunate compared to uh, other hotspots for a lot of our colleagues. Obviously, New York has really taken the brunt of this pandemic in the U.S., but there have been other spots in the country that have been hit pretty hard, and, and, and areas within, you know, New Orleans, parts of Detroit, uh, parts of Seattle, undoubtedly, and, and there are others as too. So for us, we're starting to, uh, quote, open up, as they say. Uh, I think we are one of the early states to do it, one of the interesting lessons to me, or at least principles, is we worry about infectivity and the obvious uh, acute uh, sequelae of COVID-19, illness, hospitalization, death, uh, potentially permanent pulmonary damage, other organ damage. Uh, but then, you know, sort of juxtaposing that is the economic dislocation the poverty that it starts to lay upon many different sectors of society. And so specifically for you and me as urologists and working in the healthcare field, especially uh, really dedicating to the independent practice of medicine and urology, uh, how do we move forward in a sustainable way? Everything has been talked about in terms of the essentials and, you know, let's not do any surgeries or any treatments unless they're essential in order to keep patients out of the hospital or to expose high risk. One of those, you know, populations from our standpoint is, of course, the cancer population and, you know, specifically the prostate because that's the majority. Biopsies, for example, and a lot of them have been put on hold. 
and I know people are still doing them, but uh, currently, what have you heard about, you know, kind of from a national, you're, you're very ingrained in, in national uh, goings on. What have you heard that people are doing with biopsies for prostate cancer? Yeah, you know, so it's, it's an interesting issue and there have been some really great articles that are coming forward now where, you know, COVID-19 is just dominating the, the science literature from, you know, European Urology, Journal of Urology, you know, New England Journal. I mean, you know, everything is COVID uh, almost 24-7. And a big part of that is the topic that you're hitting on right now, which is, how have we prioritized this, this notion of essential versus non-essential procedures, essential versus non-essential care, uh, essential versus non-essential surger- surgeries, essential versus non-essential or, or therapeutics, systemic therapeutics that one may want to hold off on for now, uh, for example, you know, immunosuppressive agents, perhaps cytotoxic chemotherapies, high-dose steroids. Uh, and, you know, it's not always entirely clear because we have to think about the, uh, the stage and the severity of that patient's particular disease state, whether it's prostate cancer or another form of geo-oncology. And then also, uh, you know, to your, to your point, how do we deal with patient anxiety and stress mm-hmm. Fear? How do we think about treatments that could increase a patient's risk of developing a COVID exposure? And as we said now, that they, that risk seems to be not as acute or as intensive as it was, say, two, three, four weeks ago, but yet it's still real. Um, and if we expose certain uh, of our patients with urologic acute illness or oncologic urgencies, do we put them at risk for hospitalization? Do we put them at risk for COVID? And so this is a really kind of a fascinating balance that we're all struggling with and working through at the same time. Here, and as I said, in this sort of acute phase, but then unfortunately, but perhaps in, 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 a, in a better way, as we move forward in the next six to 12 to 18 months, we could think about our prioritization with more meaning. And, and so are there strategies that could help us better decide who should be biopsied right away. And if indeed there is a cancer diagnosis, prostate cancer, as you mentioned, how do we perhaps prioritize their treatment? So what, what have you heard that people are doing to prioritize? Let's start with biopsy since it's a natural progression. Guys come in, um, and I know there's not a lot of screening going on, but there was prior to everything shutting down. So what have you heard that specifically people are trying to use as uh, guides for prioritization for even for something like a biopsy? Yeah, so I think that, you know, there, there's nothing that's, that I've read on decisions to biopsy that is um, uh, rigidly ironclad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that, you know, we can get some notion around a patient who comes in with a markedly elevated PSA and um, a clearly abnormal digital rectal exam, someone who you may say, wow, I've got to do a biopsy. I need a diagnosis because I'm concerned there's either A, metastatic disease or B, high-risk localized disease. So as we all know, there's so much heterogeneity 
in prostate cancer. And frankly, you know, this word heterogeneity, which is not, you know, not unknown to all of us who take care of patients, especially prostate cancer patients, but there's a lot of heterogeneity in this uncertain times of how do we uh, establish what is uh, high on the essential level, what's low on the essential level, mm -hmm. as opposed to what's totally non-essential. We, we can probably mostly agree on some non-essential things. Like we don't need to perhaps do de-obstructing procedures for patients with lower urinary tract symptoms that have been ongoing for years just because right. someone decides, well, now I want to get treated during a, an, a time of, of COVID. But when somebody comes in and they have that extreme anxiety that they're worried about a cancer diagnosis, it puts a huge burden on that patient and um, you know his family, his caregivers. And of course, we know that there are you know a good 50 plus percent of patients who may have very aggressive disease. And on the flip side, there may be another you know 40 or 50 percent of patients who have relatively indolent disease. Right. And and I think that one of the things that I'm starting to uh, appreciate more is the you know the spectrum the arena of biomarkers that could potentially help uh, us better inform patients regarding do we need to do a biopsy right now it, uh, here's in addition to my anxiety uh, about increasing your risk for covid exposing my own my own uh, caregiver team to more patients who might also increase the healthcare facilities risk of COVID, in addition to using up limited resources, uh, but at the same time maintaining economic models, um, how can I look at other tests, whether they're you know urine or serum biomarkers, to try to get an understanding as to who I should biopsy or not? Mm -hmm. And then once I get a biopsy, and if indeed the patient has a diagnosis of adenocarcinoma, we know that every histopathologic report, there can be second opinion disagreements. Mm -hmm. And then there can also be some reassessment or stratification with genomic classifications that could help us say to a patient, well, look, I've gotten this additional test. And in fact, you really are low risk. And so I'm even more comfortable now in recommending active surveillance as opposed to an active intervention, surgery or radiation. And then on the flip side, we run into this all the time. You know, the patient who says, you know, no one dies of prostate cancer. And indeed, we sometimes can be misled, miscategorized by the histopathology. So there could be a beneficial use of genomic reclassification to tell us, yes, indeed, you know, it might, it appears that your disease is more aggressive, mm -hmm. and, and thus we may want to prioritize you for an active intervention, surgery, radiation, or maybe you're not really ideal for active surveillance. And then in addition to that, well, none of us works in a vacuum. Most of us now work in big groups, well, not only do we have to sort of prioritize our accessibility to our surgery center time, our inpatient surgery time, our radiation oncology services, and we also uh, have to do that depending upon your model with other surgical disciplines. 
And I think having an ability to have additional testing that helps inform patients regarding a decision to either wait or be more interventional is actually, I'm not going to say soothing, but is informing and might help better prioritize and also alleviate anxieties. Yeah, I think it'd be, it, it's a tough position to be in to say to a patient, we know we have to do, treat you because you're, you need treatment, but Mr. Jones is more, has a cancer that's more aggressive than you, and we only have a certain amount of time and accessibility. We're, you're, you're alluding to the accessibility, competing with you know, our GYN colleagues, the general surgeons, because if they're doing robotics, there's only a certain number of robots. So I guess it's a way to not only alleviate the fears of your patients, but also to if there's a backlog, and we know that we've been doing very few of these cancer surgeries, they've been considered by a lot of people non-essential unless they're high risk um, or deemed to be high risk. But now you're getting into the point where things are starting to open up and the government is saying it's okay to do elective or non-essential surgery. So now we're getting to that backlog situation. You alluded to the use of uh, biomarkers, and of course, age and comorbidities are going to come into this as well. But how would you use the biomarkers, you know, more specifically to, to tell patients not just treat or not treat, but to stratify further to put people in a queue almost? For in some in some places, it's going to be an issue. Um, New York, for example, like the high uh, level places, uh, but some places it's not really going to be an issue. Yeah, in the middle of Wyoming, it's not going to probably be an issue. But uh, tell me about how you can specifically use these markers or, or other, other things to try to prioritize your patients. You listed a few things right off of the top, and I agree with you, absolutely. We think about patients in terms of their age and their associated comorbidities. You know, there are certain patients who have uh, obvious compromised actuarial survivals. And then there are other patients of the same age and have a, a remarkable time for living much longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we have to look at their comorbidities. Are these patients who are poor surgical candidates, despite the fact that they have aggressive high uh, grade group based upon ISUP definition? And so those things all have to you know, come into, into a, a consideration. Having said that, um, one has to think about what if you have, you know, uh, several patients who very similar, you know, performance status, very similar, pretty good, not daunting comorbidities, late 60s, early 70s, mid 60s, who have aggressive or even borderline. Maybe it's even it's, it's possibly even simpler to make the decision on somebody who has really aggressive pathology. Uh, who you realize kind of goes to the head of the queue in terms of requiring an active intervention, like a surgical removal of the prostate or, you know, kidney removal or, or bladder removal. But in prostate, as you've, as you've alluded to, if you have patients who are grade group two, what we call favorable intermediate, or even some who are um, unfavorable intermediate grade group three, and some of our grade group one patients who are in the low risk category by NCCN, as opposed to the very low risk patients. How do we think about helping them to understand timing of treatment for them, uh, whether it's gonna be active surveillance, 
when in their mind they are thinking, I've got cancer, I've got to do something. How do we reassure them? How do we help them to realize that, oh, I'm not just putting you to active surveillance right now, we're suggesting it because they've heard about a cue and maybe they think they're getting marginalized because they're, maybe they want their cancer taken care of, but they're hearing that there's this pent up demand and then there's this backlog and the hospital capacity has been met. So I think for that patient, you know, getting a, a genomic classification or a test such as the Prolaris can be remarkably helpful because if it concludes and confirms that indeed the patient is consistent with low risk disease or even arguably has very low risk disease, I think that can be used as a very reassuring tool for the patient and the patient's family to understand that, yes, indeed, they can move forward with an active surveillance strategy. Now, on the flip side, if you have somebody who comes in and says, um, you know, uh, I want to do active surveillance, and maybe their percentage of core involvement or the millimeter of core involvement was higher than you would have liked per core, more than three millimeter. Some would look at a percentage of core involvement of greater than 30% or greater than 50%. And even if you got a second opinion to confirm the, the, the three plus four, the three plus three, and the patient was, was uncomfortable with a surveillance strategy, or maybe was only comfortable with a surveillance strategy, getting a test such as the Prolaris might say, well, wait a minute, you really don't fit into the surveillance strategy as well. Here is your percentage risk of having or moving on to having metastatic disease. And I, I do think that these types of use of a genomic classification such as Prolaris is, is very helpful. And I, I've used this with a lot of my patients where they've said, okay, I get it. I, you know, the histopathology, as I explained to them, there is some subjectivity to that classification. It's, it's a visual interpretation uh, and, and pathologists really wouldn't argue with that. So uh, that's where I, I feel that getting the Prolaris in my, in my clinic has been very helpful. Well, Neil, I wanna thank you so much for joining us today and discussing prioritization and, and really the return to some semblance of normalcy. Thanks for all your time and your expertise and all your insights.